the optimal life. All right, Catherine, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm well, thank you, and thank you so much for having me, Nate. You are welcome, and thanks for being here. So you started off years back, based upon from what I've seen, you were in the um, counseling space, but it was like public health management, and you were working with troubled teens. Take us back to that, and tell us about, give us a, a horror story. Go back to your memory bank and tell us something that was really horrific that you had to experience when you were doing that line of work. Well, this will be a little bit of a, a left turn right away. I, In the management, I wasn't directly working with those populations. I was more in an administrative role. So I supported programs that worked with teen parents and, and did community-based violence um, prevention kinds of things. That said, I mean, we can talk about my own personal trauma, which was very intense in my teenage years, and in working with those agencies and those staffs and chart reviews and um, especially what's coming to mind is teen pregnancy and the kind of um, trauma that young girls um, who end up being pregnant traumatized also by a teen pregnancy they're experiencing just uh, their stories were um, heart-wrenching heart-wrenching and so whether it was their own abuse or their own abandonment playing out then in their own way of not um, taking care of their own reproductive and, and, and sexual health, uh, much less not even maybe having self-esteem and, and a sense of worth to um, not just kind of put them, their lives, make choices that would, would ultimately be self-harming choices. So um, in those programs, the girls were, were keeping their children and these were programs really trying to help them kind of figure everything out with now a pregnancy and a, and a newborn um, and I'm 14 or I'm 15 and I've been in the foster care system and I have no connection to myself or a family um, I quit high school you know those kinds of we can only imagine hmm. so you actually were exposed to young girls that were hardly teenagers 14 years old mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who now yeah. were carrying yeah. lives inside of them and then ultimately birthing these children into existence uh, what are some of the what are some of the mental and emotional issues that a girl at 14 years old while she's pregnant before the baby even comes what are some of the things that these kids are dealing with internally well, when you think about a young adult and just developmentally, and now we know the brain doesn't even finish forming until something like 22 when it wasn't that long ago, we thought it was three years old. Like that is still a brain that's forming much less a sense of self. Then we think about just how egocentric kids are um, and, and need to be because it's just part of the developmental process. But so I, I already probably are, are coming to this pregnancy and this moment in my life pretty um, compromised about did I get my needs met and now I have this baby so am I gonna am I gonna eat when I need to eat well I'm 14 yeah I don't necessarily eat I don't even track when I actually got but like just the reality of of you know having a healthy baby much less raising a healthy child and what it takes to do that with a lot of just basic standards that that young mom didn't get that 
and so it's just sad. it's so sad because mm. it is it is two children basically um, oh my gosh that yeah. are are in a world with services of course and that's what I was part of providing and and ensuring but um, still having to find your way with all of that so, what, what are some of the things yeah. the counselors are able to help these girls talk what are some of the tips and advice if you even could share or if you know that they're mm-hmm. sharing with these girls to kind of keep them from having a complete mental breakdown. Right. Well, and just um, in my own story, Nate, my trauma, I wasn't a teen parent, but could have been. I, um, you know, I, I attempted suicide at 14. And I ended up quitting high school, leaving home at 17. Um, what I needed and what those, what boys need, you know, it's any any of us in that kind of um, existential crisis of a time is ultimately a sense of self and within that sense of self, a sense of worth and belonging um, that then streams kind of um, self-love because then choices come from that place. So even in my now current career, which is not public health, though I love that you're connecting it because it's, it's a lot about the whole being and wellness, um, is helping anybody at any age um, look back and look inside and see where they are not kind of right with themselves, whether they have a belief about themselves that is untrue, like I'm a bad person, or they're perfectionistic because they have to keep proving their worth in the world, which is unsustainable to be perfectionistic. So you just, when you work with kids, you just kind of, it's the same messaging. You just, you kind of, it's not dumb it down, but you just, you just make it developmentally accessible. So I just would use words and if I'm working with a really young kid I might even or young adult even use images so that they can start to understand how to rebuild kind of from the inside out yeah how how do they feel comfortable is what I'm trying to understand how do they feel like there's any sort of hope uh Mm -hmm. after the after that baby's born it's got to be one of the most terrifying things for these and you're talking about kids that are coming from with no no family support Right. So hope is an important thing just I think we need in this world right now to be talking about um, because sometimes hope is too much based on circumstances and if those are hopeless or outside of our control then we feel hopeless and so one of the things that can give people hope is to not be alone. I am in something terribly difficult deep adversity but if I'm alone in it that aloneness um, is a despairing place and a hopeless place because we are herd creatures we are not meant to navigate life alone and these young women um, very much alone Um, and so then the kind of just that withness it's kind of an idea of withness is a is a actually an intervention and I would say again in my clinical practice now, working with lots of ages of people with different uh, concerns, just being the kind of therapist I try to be, I know what, what sometimes what's happening in the room is I'm undoing aloneness, which already starts to shift into now I can feel more hopeful that I can something can be different. Hmm. You mentioned that you tried to take your life at the age of 14. Mm-hmm. What, Catherine, is going on at such a young ripe age of life for you that made you feel like you didn't want to be here any longer 
Yes. And you know what? I, I'm, I'm forgetting my own history. It was at 16 I attempted my um, suicide. It was at 14 that um, kind of the shattering of my world happened. My really a beloved parent up until this point. So my parents were together and they divorced. But in my father's past, but he and I have sorted this very much. He would be sitting here smiling at both of us, Nate, um, in a very unconscious way. Um, he left our family by literally sitting my sister and I down and saying, I just, being being in this family is just too much. Well, how's a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old going to translate that? I'm too much. I'm the problem. He, he implied through his words, it actually was my fault. He didn't say, I can hardly bear leaving you and your sister, but I need to leave your mom. He didn't do that. And so what then happened was, because um, he'd been an alcoholic, but none of us had seen it. And he, what was named a secret of drinking. It just, he was so disciplined about it that once he left, all of a sudden he was, he almost died from his drinking. And so then it became, um, so let me just, let me just stop you. A couple of years. Let me just stop you real quick, Catherine, just to kind of break this down a little bit, make sure I'm following. Okay. So at 14 years old, how old your sister at that time? She was 10. Okay, so you're the oldest. Mm-hmm. Well, I have three older sisters, but they were long gone. Oh, There's geez. a big age gap, yeah. So just she and I were living at home. So 14 and 10, and your father mm-hmm. comes to you guys and says, I'm leaving, meaning I'm picking up and leaving, like you're not never going to see me again, or what? what? Um, he wasn't gone in that way that we knew of, but because his drinking got so bad so quickly he he kind of I mean he's, he was even a social worker he was still working at the time but he was MIA he was at one point we were knocking on a door to see if he was in there and alive like it, we had never had any of that kind of drinking um, and never seen him in any of that kind of drinking so no he didn't disappear in a kind of absent father that way but he disappeared in any way I understood so there was trauma just around that but there was trauma in the, the I am leaving you and the fracture at that point to my sense of worth my sense that i am not good enough to keep my father here where's your mother where's your mother at this addiction where's your mother telling me that at the time i took it personally yeah and so by by at 14 it hadn't really all hit by 16 and i i went from about 120 pounds to 200 and i i i i there was so much pain and I was self-medicating with food and then because of that weight gain, it, it just was so much. People didn't even recognize me at high school. Um, let me ask just, Catherine, let me ask you this. Where's your yeah. mother where's your mother during that time at fourteen when your father says he's leaving? What's what's going on with her? Well, she's um, a, I don't know if you know this term, displaced homemaker. You know, she um, has always been a very strong woman, but how they did it was a traditional kind of marriage. So she, um, you know, I don't even know what little job she had, but basically she was a stay-at-home parent. So this caught her by surprise, and so she she pivoted and ended up actually working for a judge who was in a member of the church we we belong to, and uh, so she landed just fine. But she herself is is she's passed also was a trauma survivor so though she functionally provided for my sister and I she really didn't know what to do with this out of control what became a 14 15 and 16 year old that was me so um, so when you're when you guys are going through this then for the two-year period when you're 14 15 and your dad's pretty much 
displaced and uh, you're kind of the you're trying to be the, the big sister maybe you're feeling like a parent mm -hmm. figure at that point because mm -hmm. you're mom you're not getting a lot of support from your mom and do you remember those those months like is your mom saying to you guys like is she trying to help you as she sees that you're putting on more and more weight I assume that your your interpersonal uh, relationships and the way that you were communicating to people you probably started changing maybe becoming withdrawn just guessing Mm -hmm. uh, were, were those mm -hmm. were those signs there and, and, and was anyone able to kind of step in and talk you through it well no um, you know which is very sad it wasn't that uh, well my dad was in my you know his his best contribution was ultimately getting into AA and by 19 he and I were sitting and he was doing all of his immense work and we were fine like we always we fully recovered relationally I still had to deal with a scar tissue of his choice and how he handled that divorce um, in terms of my worth but yeah she she you know she was from a, a time where you do four children um, and so her if we want to call it the love language was really just you know, she's a single parent and she had just been left by a husband and so she was navigating her own pain and just going to work and doing her best to put food in uh the refrigerator and the eye in a horribly passive-aggressive way would would eat it and it was really an eating disorder that had just switched from anorexia to eating addiction you know kind of in the bulimia um but so hard for her so you know I think she got pretty burned out by the end um, how I healed was ultimately leaving even though my friends did not bully me I just could not I could not withstand my own shame because I, I looked so different. So I went to San Francisco at 17 and lived in a women's residence home, and which yeah. was for 18 to, I was, I was 18, right 18 when I, when I arrived there. And, um, but let's go, let's go back a couple of years while the rest of my peers were kind of finishing high school. Let's go back for a second though. I, I want to take it back. So you didn't have the support. What do you remember at 16 years old? When did it get really dark for you? What was going on mentally and internally for you at that point? It, I think it was the it was a cascade of um, the profound sense of shame around my body, the sense of shame around not being good enough. My father left me. Like really, that the the um, abandonment uh, piece. And um, and just incredible aloneness. So and, 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 and you're much in school. of that again. I you're you're really astute. I I did isolate, so it wasn't that everybody rejected me. It was more like I just retreated, and then I was profoundly alone. Um, I didn't want to die, um, and it really is that thing of. Um, you know, basically I took a bunch of pills and this is kind of a funny story. My mom knew I was not doing well enough to not really talk to me about it and be super directly helpful, but she took all the serious drugs out of the house and the only drugs in the house were antibiotics. So the really funny story, Nate, is I rarely get sick and I always think it's because I took a whole bunch of antibiotics at 16 <laughs> and I did have to go to the hospital and have it pumped, which was horrible. And I remember in that hospital room just going, you know, if I can't even kill myself like I just failed at that like I've got something has to change and it was truly a moment spiritually for me in a kind of like 
okay, God, I've, I've got to find a different way. And that actually was the moment that things began to change and I decided not to die and I had to start living, but I had to, I had to leave Roseburg. Roseburg is a small town in Oregon and it just, I couldn't be there and be okay. But, but so when you're going through that really dark time and when you actually make the attempt to say, I'm going to take all these pills, uh, and hopefully not wake up leading up to that do you recall like having any sense of feelings toward your younger sister like if i'm gone i'm going to leave her behind with this mess or is it so dark when someone's in that place that there's no rational thinking about anyone else but themselves um well part of it was i was a kid like if i ever felt suicidal now i which which for many reasons does not come up but if it ever would I would have that consciousness around um, the damage I would do to someone else. Yeah, at 14, 15, 16, I just became so lost in what was happening for me. Um, before that, through through the years kind of leading up to that, when my dad was actively drinking, because we would have weekends once in a while with him, there was one classic moment. He had hard liquor in the car. We were traveling on a windy road to the Oregon coast, and I said, you'll stop the car, and you stop drinking, and I have a sister in here. So I was, I was really protective of her as I was early on in kind of um, how everything unfolded for those couple years um, but yeah yeah so it, you don't go there at that, at that especially at that age it's just yeah. too dark you don't care you don't you don't even think about it uh, it doesn't yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly exactly and are, are you um, and your sister still cl- do you guys still talk today are you guys close oh extremely close yeah mm. she doesn't she had a kind of, I mean, to, to my parents' credit, like, we had a really solid childhood before those years. And so she had really core um, strength. She was just, uh, you know, she read a lot. She was in her books. She was somehow, she, there's four years between us, as you can hear. Um, so it wasn't that she kind of got caught in all that, um, which now as a therapist, I can know she probably just kind of disassociated herself. And I don't know what my big sister is doing, but she loves me, but I, that's not my deal. And she just kind of was in her own little world. But Interesting. That's great. Inter- sometimes, sometimes, uh, uh, ignorance is bliss. Exactly. So that's, exactly. That's you know, I sure. say to clients like disassociation, that clinical term of disassociating from what's actually going on around us or inside of us. Yes, that's super problematic long term um, in our lives. Um, there's consequence to that. But as an adaptive function for the human species, it's incredible. Thank mm. God we can disassociate. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So when you're I assume your father hears that you try to take your life shortly yeah. thereafter. What's the response from him then? He, uh, this is so, and he would be so fine with this conversation because he was all about honesty. Um, he basically, he did nothing. He's told my mother, well, she'll either end up in a, in a psych ward or jail at this point after I commit, you know, attempted to, like he was not there as part of the recovery team. No one was there as a part of the recovery team. The team was me, and I left and just kind of walked off those pounds in the hills of San Francisco and and actually at that point thought I'd be an attorney because I did hang out in the courtrooms that my mom was a legal secretary to this judge and thought, God, I just I love criminal law. But then just kind of began to heal and got into school and realized health was because it was so part of just coming back 
ended up becoming a career, um, literally because of my trauma, choosing um, health education as at a bachelor's level and realizing this actually, I don't want to be an attorney. This is my path, is healing physically was part of staying, you know, kind of on the planet. Absolutely. How, yeah, does, how does the seven... He, uh, he did his work, Nate, really well at when, when he got into his um, recovery work. That was when he took full and complete responsibility and was just completely there for me emotionally, um, um, really owning the five years of his absence. Mm, so that was about when you were 19. But before we get back to that, so when you're, when you're 17, how, do you, how does a 17-year-old who had just recently tried to take her own life just pick up and where do you go to in San Francisco? How, who are you living with? How does that work? Well, before I before I could qualify, so I left in the fall, quit high school, um, and this would have been like junior year. So I um, and and so I couldn't. I, I at the time I don't know if you're aware of like voc rehab money. This was obviously years ago in '58. So there was there were monies available. So um, because because um, people in my life in Roseburg, my mom friends of my dad family or friends of our family there was a gentleman that was a friend of the family and he ran the voc rehab um department in in roseburg and so once i got my ged and quit it was like so what am i gonna do and i was really interested in travel and so i found a travel school in san francisco he got the voc rehab money for me so there was nothing it just and we i stayed with family friends in san anselmo so i would take the ferry across the bay to this little school and then and once I turned 18 in December and then came home, I applied for um, a job at a cruise company in downtown San Francisco, and I got it. So I went back after the holiday and had a job with American Hawaii Cruises. And the place I lived, where my sister, older sister, had lived, that's how we knew about it. Um, it's it's called the Mary Elizabeth and the, um, the Elizabeth Mary Elizabeth Inn, and it's just literally run by nuns for 18 to 34 five year old women. You can't have boys upstairs, and it gives you two meals a day. So I had a place to live. I had friends, and I had food. Wow! And it was a huge. I wish they had more of those. Um, if if our if my family didn't know, if my sister hadn't gone to that. I don't know how I would have made it on my own at 18 years old. Wasn't making that much money. Um, you were learning uh, independence and survival skills at a very young age. You didn't realize it probably at that time, but you were really learning how to make this life work on your own uh, as a teenager. Oh, yeah. I think psychically, um, though, I always felt very loved. There was a way I I kind of knew. I, I, I The stories about just my energy as a really little kid was just pretty fiercely independent so I had that going into this which I am I am grateful for and I'm grateful for having the core things both parents gave me and my older sister well all my sisters gave me in terms of just feeling deeply loved you know we had a rich spiritual life we had lots of friends my mom was really involved in school I always had friends at school like um, I had a lot of core resilience but yeah I when I look back, it's and I have raised children that age now, and they just they're babies, and I yeah. just like teen parents. It just breaks my heart yeah. on my own behalf. Um, but I did, you know, kind of like I had to dissociate from like, oh my god, what am I really doing here? It's like you just go and you just yeah. you just go, you just find keep your go, way. you keep one foot in front of the other, and you just keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely, and then you look back Do now. You have, 
experience in your own life that is similar to that, where you just kind of really had to pull yourself up um, on your own? Um, I've never experienced that to that level uh, of having to like pull myself up on my own. Um, I, I had faced some quite adversity when I went off to college. I wasn't ready for college mm-hmm. emotionally mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was in a really dark place and mm-hmm. was doing terrible and just getting drunk and eating and putting on weight in my first freshman mm-hmm. year so into my sophomore year, doing dumb things and just completely retaliating. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, I was about to get, I was about to drop out of college. I mean, I was, this, the, my, my biggest adverse moment in my life, I was probably, you know, 19 and uh, was about to drop out of college, had a promising future and was just going to go work at home and figure out something to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I remember, I remember I packed up my room. My parents were begging me for weeks to keep going and stick it out. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I was completely demotivated and getting 1.9 mm-hmm. GPAs and those kind of things. And, uh, and I had my whole car packed up and I remember I turned my car on and, and I just sat there and was frozen with anxiety and, and I couldn't move. And, and, uh, it was just this epiphany moment. Like this is, this is a big deal. If you go, if you go this route, this is going to change. You know, I had all these plans. I wanted to go off to law school and all this stuff, you know, and, mm-hmm. but at 18, 19, I wasn't there for it. And, uh, it was making some really bad decisions, you know. So, um, mm. so that was a big moment, and I somehow stayed and turned it around, and ended oh, up going so off. Great. Ended up going yeah, off to I law love school. Those moments, and, those wake yeah. call moments in our life. Thank God. Yeah, I mean that. Yeah. I've never, I've never had, I've never faced the type of adversity that we're talking about with you, but I've had my own issues, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things I've so learned is pain is pain, Nate, and it is. Um, I teach my clients that a lot. That um, we don't have to do comparative suffering. You know, uh, people don't generally make it up. They don't won't even want to exaggerate and so everybody's heart is is their heart and um, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah but i um you know so you sounds like you can relate to kind of the moments of darkness and um that real boy going further down this road um sometimes we can't even reverse the car on some of those paths yeah and and i know that's where your your specialty comes in but before we get to some of that uh, at 19, when your dad comes knocking back, um, I don't know mm-hmm. what that scene must have been like, but when he comes back and is apologetic and, and asking for forgiveness, uh, I imagine, um, what is the uh, interaction, what is that experience like for you, and did you did you let him know how how bad those five years were and how it really changed your life? You know, um, I, I because I was 19 and... Um, at that point, so grateful that he didn't die. Um, he, by the time he was even doing that moment, he'd done some time in AA, and I was going to AA meetings with him and seeing his recovery. And like, it's an incredible path for people that are chemically dependent. Um, it's so much more than just staying sober. And so, you know, I was just you know i was easily forgiving of him i probably talked a little bit about you know like it really hurt it was really hard what i've come to know now and not always with him is there was a lot of actual emotional pain trapped inside of me some pretty deep rage and um that that has been more the personal work i've had to do because i've had a temper and when 
I've had to really look honestly and it sometimes wasn't as simple as taking deep breaths and just trying to calm down. Where does this temper come from? I had to go all the way back. So I didn't process the rage with him at 19 to the extent I even knew Nate. It lived in my body. Uh. Um, and I think that's why I turned on myself. That rage towards him turned to self-infliction and self-harm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So fast forward to the work you're doing now mm-hmm. and not surprised at all that you've found yourself or that you've <laughs> guided yourself to this place <laughs> because of your past experiences as we've, as we've highlighted um, how do you prevent yourself let's start with yourself and then we'll get to the services you're giving to others as well but many people when they go through these traumatic experiences they end up living in the loop and they keep repeating the same things over and over again it manifests into their life and it almost just becomes a part of their identity and um and they don't seem to know how to get out of that so my question for you is how did you able how are you able to you know free the mind and uh you know cherish yourself and and make make peace with those really traumatic events so that they don't continue to rear their ugly head in, in some kind of cycle for the rest of your life it's such a, it's such a great question. So, you know, it isn't all roads lead to, lead to the idea of intrinsic worth, but many do. And so, let's just take that as a. So, you know, the behavior is perfectionism, and the thought process is per- perfectionism. But one of the things we can do, whether we're seeing a therapist or not, just in our own kind of deepest self reflection, is is ask the question: Where is this coming from? Where is this perfection? Where is this reaction coming from? Where is this thought coming from? And so sadly in a way like I worked with therapists all the way through um and my dad was a therapist so that that was really comfortable for me but I only am becoming a therapist these last and this last 20 years and this is then what I offer people was I able to see that unless I go in almost like a surgeon and not extract the parts of me that were wounded but if I don't actually go in and do what's called parts work and heal that 14-year-old, she's going to live and she is going to show up in patterns in my life and thoughts and feelings and pain and distorted thinking and reactions to other, all of that. So I had to go be with her so deeply angry and let her have the feelings that she couldn't fully have at the time and even at 19 with her father. So it's called parts work where we go in and we actually um, attend to that wounding. And, and the idea would be I'm kind of then the mother to her. I don't look toward my dad or my mom or my boyfriend or husband or my children to give me what I didn't get in childhood. It's I interact with that part of me as the true other. So there's an adult Catherine talking to the 14-year-old that is so hurt and so scared and so angry. Right. And so confused because she thought it was her fault. So it's it's called parts work. But again, I wasn't introduced this until I became a therapist. And I, I wish I had known way earlier, not just how to go to a therapist and say, oh, this happened to me and hope I feel better and hope I get out of those loops, but actually have interventions. Um, but how does that, that so how does not, that, yeah, how, do, how does that look, Catherine, in reality and in, in practical sense when you say parts work and you're with yourself? Uh, when you say talk to yourself, what are some of the 
um, things that you're doing to to remedy these these bad prior feelings? Well, I'm going to use this podcast as, as an example. So if I had not done the work I've done, then a very anxious part of me probably would have shown up. Um, I would be very perfectionistic about it. Um, I basically, it's it's kind of like a young part or an injured part coming online because I've worked with that part of me. I can do podcasts. I could publish a book. I can I can stay in a really grounded place. So so in a real kind of literal way, I come to you already accepting that I get to be fallible. We're going to have a conversation. Um, you will like me or you won't. Your audience will like me or they won't. Um, a kind of applied non-perfectionism because I'm a recovering perfectionist because the damage done to me affected my sense of worth. So I look for ways and teach people to look for ways or say it's I don't love myself because I didn't feel as fully loved during part of my child. I would look for ways to practice loving myself through inner dialogue or choices I can make um, so that I, I build that neurology um, and kind of have that, that restored sense of self. By doing, I transform not just by wanting it to be different, not just by being aware of my wounding. Um, so it's, it's uh, as I wrote actually in my book, I'll have a concept, but I actually have practice pieces because if we, if we just have concepts, you know, sometimes the dial doesn't move a whole lot, I guess I would say, Nate. Sure. So, and you said you didn't know this until you were about 38 years old, plus or minus, when you started this part of your career. So at 38 years old, when you're doing those things, when you're when you're going back to that scared 14-year-old girl, are you, is this through therapy with a, another counselor? Is this internally? Is this a little bit of both? And, it's uh, a little bit of both, but I really encourage, um, because, you know, healing from trauma, and there's lots of kinds of trauma, it doesn't have to be big abandonment stuff or a death of a parent or abuse uh, there's called little t trauma but for for the human psyche there's been trauma events large or small frequent or infrequent and the recovery is lifelong but we as we work with those parts um it comes up less often so if i say to somebody well you're always going to need a therapist until every single part of you is healed that would create dependence and that would both be unethical and that would be unnecessary but to give people the tool to be able to work with those young injured parts and to recognize them when they are present in their adult life um, i do that work with them then teach them to do it within themselves and then it's really more an empowerment place that they can take that work forward with another therapist or potentially not with another therapist sure um yeah so this is part of yeah. this this wakefulness training that you that you teach is that correct yeah i just you know we have to uh our awakened self is a healed and whole self so we can't just it's called spiritual bypass if we just want to just be awake and and kind of ignore um what's ultimately still living potentially inside of us so yeah my book is a lot about my practice is a lot about just navigating the mind cherishing the body having a relationship with yourself having conscious relationship with others uh yeah so yeah that's 
that's beautiful work that you're doing and mm-hmm. uh you Thank can tell you. you can tell it, it it's <laughs> i mean this is your life it's it hits close to home mm-hmm. um but when you you said something before too about getting angry and allowing yourself at 38 years old you you didn't know about this this technique and then you implemented it you had to let that 14 year old you had to be angry so at 38 years old what was that period of time like for you? Was it was it full of rage, letting it all out, and, and what is how does that how does that dissipate over time? Well, one of the things to know about emotions, uh, emotions that are created in a current situation or any even past emotion, is it's really a body experience, and um, you know it 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 lives in the body and then can leave its release that's why we feel better after a cry it's really gone and if you look at little kids they feel their feelings and then because they're not they don't push those feelings down they're not mad anymore or they're not sad anymore you know it might be a big storm but it's gone when it's gone so so what I wasn't doing was realizing that though I always realized I'm kind of intense, I kind of have a temper, I've gotten into some moments where I was unregulated with people, I had not connected that to my trauma. And so I was initially in my life, even before I became a therapist, just always trying to not overreact. But it was more in the deeper dive of, but where is this coming from? And then where's the heck coming from that I could get to kind of the source of at least some of my rage? And so then it was about kind of having an inner space where I could let those feelings wave through and process a little bit with a therapist. I remember one powerful moment I did it with a therapist, but some of it was on my own. Some of it was a lot of release of grief just the pain of losing my father. Um, I hadn't really grieved that fully. So it's really kind of emotional catch-up work for all the feelings. Anger is sometimes a lead emotion where there's other more vulnerable feelings underneath. Um, So yeah, I was not doing well with that, though trying to control my anger until I really had an understanding of how deep and and far back it went. And then I, I don't get that angry anymore. I mean, I get angry because somebody scares me on the road because, you know, they cut in front of me. But it's not like a bucket of anger uh, walking around with me that, you know, is is triggered by a small event and then I have a big response. Like that bucket really, um, in healing, it really drains. Yeah, well, the people that are so easily triggered, I always think about Mm -hmm. this, and the ones that could be having the greatest day of their lives and then some random person barely does anything to them and it ruins their whole day. They basically curl up into a little ball, or they they they, they disintegrate right there in front of you. Um, it's that those those people. They they let so they let all the outside noise have such a heavy influence on their lives, and none of it matters. None of it means anything to them. But it's like they're they're so easily triggered that uh, they're never able to truly live in the moment because that moment can be taken away within a split second by anybody. Well, I love that you're saying that, and I'll throw in another word that is a very different understanding for people about mindfulness. So uh, the my my definition of mindfulness, which I understand is actually its most accurate definition, is being present in the moment with acceptance. So if we don't clean up the stuff from our past, and if we don't handle the affairs of our future, it's very hard to live in the moment. You do something to me and it reminds me of old pain that I've actually never metabolized. You're going to be the target of all that old pain coming forth. 
And people don't know that. It's just like, you're just an angry person or you're just an overreactor. It's like, no, you're a trauma survivor. And that's not to loosely throw the word trauma around. When our feelings are disproportionate to what's happening, something else is going on. We need to be curious and compassionate about that and do the work around that. Beautifully said. But when we do that work, then something happens and it's like, oh, oh, I got scared. That was annoying. And now I can go back to living in the moment. Or if I actually have a relationship to my future, not live in the future, but take care of my adult business, then when I sit down to get quiet or I'm involved in a holiday activity, I'm not distracted by the things that have not been handled for next week. Um, and so, again, to live in the present is to really do um, be a good steward about the past and the future. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's perfectly. That's perfectly put. Mm-hmm, uh, before we finish you. it off here, Catherine, uh, I'm curious to know, looking back on your life and all the experiences you went through, and again going back to the uh, attempted suicide, you mentioned you have children too now, and and. They may be around that same age. Um, how has how has your experience impacted you with raising your kids? And what are some of the things that you do to make sure that they don't go down that same path that you did? <laughs> uh, well, ultimately, it's why I wrote my book, because I can't be my kids' therapist. And I felt like between the therapists, the spiritual teachers I've had, the life experience I've had, I I just, um, I'm I'm... I'm generous and I'm um, strong and I'm really direct. I'm super communicative, but I didn't want to overwhelm them. Like be that person. Like, and here's a life lesson, and and don't, and you got to think of this. Like, it, they would tune me out. So I was quite aware of that. Um, but you know, living, living what I want them to know and experience, like a sense of um, kindness towards self and self-worth, I, I that's the most impactful beyond communicating it directly through words or again through a form like my book. Um, not right away though would I say I was super conscious in my parenting. I met a man with four children. I didn't even know I wanted to be a mom. I was 27 years old. I'm like, oh my God, I want to be a mom. In fact, I even want to have a baby. But of course, we were doing Disneyland parenting and taking the kids to Seattle and just spending, you know, they, I, we all fell in love with each other, but it was, it was, I signed up for much more than I than I actually was prepared for because we had a baby pretty quickly. So all of a sudden I went from zero to five children (laughs) and again had not really dealt with at a trauma level my trauma. So I was was highly anxious and I was also easily um, kind of my temper would be there. Um, But because especially I felt like I had parents that were absent in a certain way, if the if my kids and they're actually all in their late 20s up to early 40s so they're not teenagers they would sit on this phone call and say a lot of love we love her a lot great mom Um, she was she overcompensated in being so present in our lives kind of more helicopterish so I had to really learn especially with my my final one Shahela May in high school kind of had at some point to say you know you can't really actually control me I'm not I'm not I'm I'm I have the values you need me to have I'm not going to hurt myself I'm going to take care of my education but I need you to I need you to get in your own lane mom I mean Ooh. she literally had that conversation with me wow well, yeah this is this, She's, yeah I mean all my kids are amazing this, so that was just so I had to really learn not to come from both my abandonment um anger but also fear and over 
owe an overcompensation, and that's what a lot of parents can do. They, sure. they don't understand what happened to them. They haven't healed it, so they just kind of try to prevent what happened, but it, it just sets up a different set of problems in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. That's where I thought that that may go. That's It's a different kind of loop. You're living in such fear. Yeah. You're right? living in exactly. such fear, and such fear and anxiety. Well, so, yeah, that, um, that that feels pretty different. I have the honor of being a grandparent now, too, though I'm not in a role of raising my grandchildren. Um, you know, the the path of healing, the path of becoming more and more conscious in our relationships is truly a path. And so I have six incredible beings that happen to be my children and their partners, which all are truly some of my closest friends and you know uh we're we're moving through life um more and more consciously i would say and um you know just even on this whole idea of vaccination and um covid as a group of a lot of people now that we are as a tribe we've had um diversity and but we have been the family that has not harmed one another with that diversity and figuring out how to do this upcoming holiday and test so that we're all safe but we can all ultimately honor um, those different perspectives so um, I guess my message is it's not just doing the work it's continuing to know what the work is and apply it to our life and relationships absolutely you've mentioned the book river to uh, it's river to ocean you've mentioned it several times throughout this just tell us quickly uh, about the book and then we'll link it up in the show note Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, So River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness was literally kind of my journey, kind of the idea of um, um, healing and moving through our human um, existence in our most conscious way. So I I propose we're more than just our human self, but like we've been talking about, if we don't deal with aspects of our humanity and, and life experience, we cannot be that most awakened self or that person that curls up in a ball just with one little thing one provocation so the book has some inner world pieces like cherishing the body in relation to self which includes worth and then outer world pieces which is um kind of relationship to nature we're part of nature relationship to others um contending with the troubled world um so i just how i mapped it is i would produce i would um, present kind of a topic or, you know, a paragraph or two on an idea, but then I would put some practice ideas and then I would end with an inspirational story. So many of my clients, um, obviously anonymously, and some of my children and myself are in a few of the stories because I wanted this book to really inspire change. So it's not like, oh, let's talk about intrinsic worth. I have a story of a client who didn't have a father and that was the classic, oh, that's why you don't feel good about yourself. But then my daughter, who was a reader for the book said, mom, I had two parents that were totally there, but I've struggled with worth. You you have to talk to people who are 25, and they and you always told me I'm good enough, but I still didn't know I was good enough. You have to have a story in the book about someone like me. So I have two stories in the book about worth. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. so the, that's the format, and it's basically about living... Um, living wakefully in our human life well thank you so much this was enlightening and, and an eye-opening thing thanks for bearing with me by the way I've, I've had a cold that i've been fighting through but oh yeah uh, I hope you feel better soon thank, thank you again nate so much for having me and best wishes to you on your journey and to your audience and uh for a healthy happy holiday season thanks and happy new year and, and uh wishing you a fantastic 2022 hey thanks nate take good care Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. 
and you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps, wherever you may be listening, please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.